Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 14, Healthcare in Rural America. In this episode, my guest, Dina Vanderzam, discusses healthcare problems faced by rural Americans. Ms. Vanderzam has a bachelor's in psychology from New York University. After a brief stint with Corporate America, she joined the Peace Corps. She worked in Lancho, China, teaching English for two years on the edge of the Gobi Desert. When she completed her Peace Corps service, she moved to Missouri, where she attended the University of Missouri and received her MSW and Master's of Public Health in 2016. She has been working as a healthcare organizer at the Missouri Rural Crisis Center for three years. Dina Vanderzam, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. So I want to explain to my listeners that normally what happens is the person I interview is an expert on a subject area and Medicare for All. I just want to explain to my listeners that you are an expert on rural health care, which we will get to, but that you're not commenting on Medicare for All. So with that, would you please explain what you do and who you work for? So the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, or MRCC, started in 1985. We're a statewide farm and rural organization with over 5,600 member families. And our mission is preserving family farms, but with a core focus of also striving for economic and social justice. And as we did this work, starting out of the farm crisis in the 80s, it became clear to us that building up rural communities and fighting back against the systemic disinvestment in those areas meant we had to have a real focus on healthcare because that was a massive impact on people's quality of life, specifically from our farming and ranching families. And that is sort of the focus of my work, but a lot of what we see here in Missouri speaks to rural communities across the nation. With healthcare specifically, what were the problems that you were seeing? I think of it in several buckets. Some will be unsurprising, the physical difficulty of access because folks are traveling these longer distances to get to providers, and providers are also then traveling those distances to get to them. There's the literal access of the number of providers and where people wind up being concentrated in often the very urban areas. Then the financial barriers. Missouri is one of the states that never, to date, has not expanded Medicaid. And we see that very clearly. We've closed six rural hospitals since 2013 alone. One of the things that is maybe a little bit unique to Missouri, but we have a very large farming and ranching population. We are second only to Texas in agriculture for livestock. One of the things that we started studying over a decade ago was access to insurance because so much of our system Insurance is closely tied to employment, and farmers and ranchers would never had access to employer-based insurance. We've studied the trend across time of how often someone in the family was sent off-farm to get a job, specifically to get health insurance to anchor for the family, especially children. We know across the U.S. that 60% of our bankruptcies are tied to medical conditions, 
the vast majority of those folks that are facing bankruptcies, we have seen the ripple effects of that in Missouri with having a lot of folks who were never able to be insured because of pre-existing conditions for a long time. And then the devastation of the person who is holding the job for insurance purposes, losing a job and the impact that has on the whole family back home. Now, did the Affordable Care Act help that situation at all? At MRCC, we were some of the very early enthusiastic backers of the Affordable Care Act. And it certainly has opened up a lot of options, especially for those with pre-existing conditions, but also the freedom that people had of being able to get plans that didn't have to be tied to an off-farm job. It was a really huge step for our farming and ranching population, as well as, obviously, low-income Missourians across the state. Was it important to the farmers and ranchers to have that extra person to help them? To have, like, on the farm? Yes, to have that extra person on the farm since they didn't have to go and be at another job. Yeah, I mean, I spent the last year traveling the state and talking to folks for kind of our post-ACA updated information. And many folks are renting out land or hiring folks to come in and help as opposed to having family members do it. I think it is a really big impact on the family farm, especially the smaller run operations. And we see with younger generations, fewer and fewer of them wanting to inherit the farm and keep passing it down the family line. We see the younger people going to school, moving to cities and taking those jobs, often for the benefits that they have learned to really appreciate that come along with that. And so I think as we see family farmers continuing to struggle with everything from farm incomes being down and low crop prices and tariffs and all of that sort of thing, People don't often realize how much health insurance is really tied to those choices because it's far too dangerous of a profession to go uninsured, if at all possible. So do you think if health insurance or if medical care was available to get that more of the children, the family, would be interested in staying on the farm? I think it would change, yeah, folks' entire perspective if there was a lot more freedom, right? If that concern was off the table. And there wasn't the struggle of what plan we're going to be offered next and what providers they would and wouldn't be able to see. There's a lot of choices that they're weighing and making decisions on how far they will or will not travel for care. So I think we would see certainly not a total reversal, um, but a shift in how much that opened up farming as an option for younger folks or new folks wanting to get into it. One of the things you have mentioned a couple times at least is that people have to travel far to go see a provider to outstate areas. Do you know on average how far a person has to go to find a provider? It varies a lot, even across just Missouri. We have these pockets of urban and suburban, but in our really rural areas, it is not uncommon if you talk to folks like EMTs for them to be traveling on a call. 30, 40, 50 miles one way. And when you think of those calls, like this is not just you're jumping on the highway and driving. That's a lot of smaller two-lane roads. It's often a lot of gravel and dirt roads when you get into the really rural counties. And so what we have seen and heard from folks over the years as we have fought here for Medicaid expansion is this geographical distance translates to literal preventable death. We have people on the kitchen floor with a stroke or a heart attack, and it's taking over an hour for an ambulance to get to them, let alone to get them to care. 
So we have estimates from back in 2016, we're saying we had about 700 preventable deaths from our lack of Medicaid expansion. And that is tied not only to insurance, but that's all the things that go into how many of our hospitals have shut down across the state. Many people are traveling even further, as well as the ones that are staying in operation are often scaling back services that they offer. And one of the first things to go is emergency care and OB care just because of the expenses keeping those up. We have seen this for certain services increase, 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 and people traveling for any care are often going 40, 50 miles is not unheard of, even to get to primary care. And when traveling those 40 or 50 miles, how long does that take? Is that like an hour or is it two because of the roads? I mean, it depends. It could easily be an hour on a good day, but here in the Midwest, we have reliably unpredictable weather. So when you factor in rain or fog or recently a lot of ice, snow, that makes travel time very quickly increase to even double the time, depending on what you need to do to be safe. When you look at specialist care, it gets even more mind-boggling for us. I was looking at the county health rankings from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and like our primary care ratio if all things were considered equal, would be 1,418 to 1 for patient-to-provider ratio. And that doesn't even account for the fact that the bulk of those providers, again, would be in a place like St. Louis, Kansas City, Springfield, not equally spread out across the county. So when you get to specialist care, mental health care, that's something we really struggle with having access to, that people aren't driving more like 100 miles to get to. You said the provider ratio. Is that a good provider ratio or a bad provider ratio? What's average? I actually couldn't speak for the nationwide average. I would need to look that up. But the idea for a primary care physician to have a client load of 1,400 people seems completely implausible to us. We would argue that is a bad ratio as far as impacting quality care and how much time they could spend with people. And obviously, that's not a realistic mode because not everyone is seeking primary care and not everyone is getting those appointments and whatnot. But even if it were the perfect world, in what way does that translate to the quality care that people need? Exactly. So do you think that people in your area, if they would have a slight raise in taxes, but they would save a lot on insurance premiums and deductibles, that they would support a Medicare for All system? It's interesting. If there's one thing you can count on in Missourians, we see this all the time with our statewide ballot initiatives, a tax increase is fairly unpopular. However, when you talk to people about the actual issues, about what they might get and what that would look like, people are more receptive to the idea. Medicare in and of itself is extremely popular. We did a survey of about 700 folks in rural counties and 87% of them said they would do whatever they could to stop privatization of Medicare. They love it the way it works, and you just can't get folks to say a bad thing about it because we've got a lot of people who've been waiting so long and so patiently to age into Medicare. We see a lot of hesitation from folks as well, though, because they have counted on it, and it's providing them very great care if they have Medicare already. They're very reticent to change it much because they worry about it becoming unstable. So you tap into people's fear of the unknown and fear of losing what they waited so long to get, especially if they've been putting off getting needed surgeries and things like that. 
people are very in favor of things like increasing Medicare's power and opening up the power to negotiate drug prices. But if you ask about lowering the age of letting folks in, you see a quick drop off in overall support. It's something that'll take a lot more time and education, I think. Well, that's interesting because I guarantee that one of the arguments that the opponents of Medicare for All are going to make is that you'll lose your care. And that's simply not true. One thing that Medicare for All will do is it'll guarantee coverage for everybody and it will guarantee better coverage. For example, Medicare for All will include vision and dental, something that's not included in the current Medicare. So that's something that we would have to explain to people, but I think they would find it beneficial. The other thing it would do is it would allow people to get any job they wanted without having to worry about health care. And that would actually help a lot of people in Missouri. As you said, they wouldn't have to send people out to get another job to get health care. Do you think that people would like that? I think the freedom that people would have, the weight lifted of that concern and the increasing financial burden would be a huge asset. That's one thing that I was going to mention earlier. One of the things we see, unfortunately, in our rural areas is that people are starting to turn down care because it's gotten so unaffordable. So an ambulance transport or what they often want to do in our really rural area is a helicopter where people are, if they have the possibility, sometimes turning that down and trying to get themselves to care because they don't want that $10,000 bill later. And if that was no longer an issue of private companies carving out what they would and would not cover and people having to choose these really complicated plans where you think you're getting great coverage and then when you try to use it, you get these surprise bills where, oh, it turns out the anesthesiologist was out of network, but you had no control of that. If that sort of issue were off the table, the amount of freedom people would feel to pursue the job that they wanted or stay in a community where previously they felt like maybe they needed to move to the city to get the better access to things. That would be life-changing, especially for those of us working to really ramp up rural economies. Well, what I will say is the cost of an ambulance may be multiplied because you're so far away, but that's a problem even in urban areas. You have stories of people who say, oh, don't call the ambulance, I will take a Lyft or an Uber. Call a Lyft or an Uber. I cannot afford the ambulance. So that's a common problem. The other thing that I will say, this gets a little bit into financing, but one of the things that people have suggested for Medicare for All is global budgets. I covered that previously, but basically what happens, instead of having a fee-for-service, you look at the cost, say, for a doctor or hospital, and you say, Here's what we'll give you. This should be enough for overhead and payment. And if you see a lot more people, we'll make adjustments appropriately. But the other thing that would do is you would separate out the operating expenses from the capital budgets. And the reason that's important is one of the ideas is to get resources where needed. So that would allow people to say, oh, we need to put a hospital here. I can't guarantee that we can have hospitals within 10 miles of everybody, but perhaps what we could do is maybe make sure that you have doctors within maybe 30 to 50 miles and set up the helicopter so that people can at least get access to very good care relatively quickly, as opposed to the problems they have now. 
And I think that's one of the things that we need to explain because the doctors and the people who are farthest, they want to make sure that people can get the health care that they need. Do you think if it was explained that way, people would also be for it? I think so. I mean, I think it helps frame it in the more relatable light for folks. There's something about raising taxes that just makes the light switch turn off for a lot of folks. All of these issues hit very close to home is what we find. When we frame our healthcare conversations in a lens of, for lack of a better term, an anti-corporate narrative, people relate on a very gut level to that, that they understand that the corporations that are controlling feed prices and vertically integrating their markets that they sell in are the exact same companies that are now trying to control their medicine cabinets, as we have in the instance with the Monsanto-Bayer merger. When you really highlight the corporate influence in healthcare and big pharma and the roles that they are playing that are not to the benefit of actual people and getting them the care that they need, we have a sick care system, not a health care system. It's something that brings more people into the conversation, and then we're able to have those more nuanced conversations. One of the things in our study, we did a poll in 2017 when we were worried about the Affordable Care Act being threatened, and we had a ton of people who, if you just ask the upfront question, you know, do you support the Affordable Care Act? Their answer is no. But then we kept talking to folks, and we said, well, is there anything about it that you like? And about 40%, it was about 450 people who said, no, I don't like it. But 40% of them stuck around and had a conversation and said things like, well, we absolutely can't live without pre-existing conditions coverage. And it's actually been very beneficial to our families to keep kids on up until they're 26. And the work to close the donut hole has been huge for several members of my family. So people... If you keep them in that conversation and get the buy-in, even if they upfront want to say, no, I disagree with you, they're willing to come around and at least point to the parts that they know that they're depending on and that they're willing to stand up and fight for. One of the interesting things about that, what you just said, is that in Kentucky, they developed a program called Connect, which was what they called their ACA marketplace. And you would have people who would say, I'm against Obamacare, but I really like Connect. And it's important for people to understand what's being offered. I'm originally from Missouri. I grew up in the St. Louis area. That's an urban suburban area. I'm very familiar with the idea that just say no to taxes. But I think when you talk to people, it's not that they're against taxes, but they don't feel like they're getting value for their tax money. I think if you say, Yeah, you'll have a slight increase in taxes, but you're going to end up with more disposable income if you currently have health insurance because the slight increase in taxes is going to be a lot less than what you're paying in premiums and deductibles. People will listen. At least I hope that's the case. One of the fascinating things we did with some of our farm families this summer was sit down and talk to them about how much value they thought their insurance was giving them and found that people tend to just think of healthcare like these huge increasing costs that are going up year to year as a somewhat unavoidable thing. 
So people weren't really calculating how much of their budget was going to premiums and their out-of-pocket costs and things of that nature. And so we sat down and asked them directly, how much are you spending a month for you or the family or whatever the plan may be? Multiply that by 12 and what are the average costs of prescriptions and things of that nature and found that people, when they were sitting there in real time, it was almost like a, oh, I wish I'd never tallied that up. Like when I just was having it automatically come out and I wasn't having to look at it, it just felt like this is the way things are. So we make do with it. But when you actually sit there and think, you know, I used to pay $6,000 a year to cover me and my spouse. And now, you know, 10 years later, we're paying, oh my God, thousands a month just for the two of us. And people started spitballing the things they would do. They're like, God, if I had an extra $12,000 a year, if I had an extra XYZ. But it was amazing, or at least it was surprising to me that how much a chore, like the healthcare has become a thing that... We just don't want to think about and we don't lay it out and budget and think about how much the savings could be if we did eliminate a lot of those individual costs. Yes. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that people are skipping care, even if they have insurance, because they cannot afford the deductibles. That's going on all over the place. Unfortunately, forgotten the exact statistic, but... There's a substantial number of people who skip care because of the deductibles. When they go, they're generally sicker and need more care, so that raises expenses. It's a problem throughout the system, not just in rural areas. Yes, it is absolutely a nationwide problem. What we do see is our rural populations across the country tend to be older, poorer, and sicker in that they often have more chronic conditions than their urban and suburban counterpoints. So we do absolutely see it in communities of every location, but it often becomes when you look at SNAP dependency, when you look at rates of people on Medicare and Medicaid especially, our rural areas are really dependent on a lot of those programs and they have often the biggest challenges. That's one of the things that I occasionally work with providers on is understanding that, you know, missed appointments are not non-compliance. It's that a ride fell through and they don't have a car and they live 40 miles away and they literally had no way to get here or a child was sick or child care fell through or that the pill rationing is because rent was due and lights were due and it's very cold. We had to keep the power on. So when we're factoring all of these things in, we just see a lot of things compounding, impacting folks. But that is certainly true for low-income folks, no matter where they live. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yes, there's one thing I had been thinking of that we see rural communities, especially I think a lot of communities, but I see it a lot in our rural group, are really wonderful at supporting each other. We see a lot of church potlucks and yard sales that are put on to raise money for a family that's down on their luck and has a lot of expenses. But it is really just demoralizing to look at how much of that is tied to specifically medical and healthcare expenses in a country of such wealth when we could be doing it better. The GoFundMe has become proud and claiming on their front page that they're a leader in online medical fundraising. I think they said last year they had over 250,000 medical campaigns, raising $650 million towards those. 
health insurance is one of the top campaigns that we see how people being uninsured or underinsured very often are being lifted up and supported by their friends and neighbors and families and communities and total strangers on these crowdsourcing platforms. And while it is wonderful that that sort of vibrant, supportive spirit exists, I would love to see the day where we no longer have to have a fundraiser because somebody in the congregation has been diagnosed with cancer and can't afford their basic care that they need. I think we put a lot on other people and on being generous and charitable folks when there are systems in place that could easily be filling those gaps. Dina, I want to thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. I really appreciate the way that you outline some of the problems that happen in the rural part of Missouri. From what I've read, those problems are typical of people in outstate areas. Hopefully we can do something about it. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.